0: While our children are making their way out in the chaos and confusion and all that's taking place. About a year ago, I went to a service at a neighboring church. It was a Good Friday service. It was long. It was a long service. They did the whole life of Jesus plus some. Uh, it was a long service. Anyway, um, While we were there, and uh, truthfully, I was going to slip out about midway through the service. Uh, My family was all in town, and so I was going to, I told them I'd be home soon and quick, and of course I was in a a church that was of a different culture, and so they called all the pastors down to the front row. Uh, I had to sit next to the senior pastor of that church. There was no slipping out. I, I was there. Anyway, on the way home... I said to to Kathy, who was with me, I said, "You know, of all the service, it was a great service. But of all the service, there was this one girl who danced, and wow, she just—I was like, wouldn't it be great if we could have someone who danced like that come to fullness and be a part of fullness?" And and she goes to me, "You know, dummy, uh, you know, you talk to people like that in your own car and family." She goes to our church. And I'm like, what? Since when? And they started coming like a month or two ago. You need to meet them. They go to our And she danced for us today. Wasn't Beth awesome? Thanks to Beth. If you don't know Beth and Eric Bischoff, you need to meet them. They are awesome. Um, today, turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 and I will get there, I'll get there eventually. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, uh, my family lived in Bethesda, Maryland, but my mom and dad's home place was in South Georgia. It it was quite a drive, and we'd have to drive down I-95, and then somewhere around Savannah, we'd cut across to Georgia, and you know, that just takes stinking forever to drive across Georgia. We had this uh, Buick Electra 225. It was a big honking car. They don't make them like that much anymore. And uh, we would travel. I was about 10 years old, 10 or 11. And, you know, back in the day, before seat belts uh, enamored us all, um, we had three kids. And so uh, one would be laid out on the seat. One would be laid out on the floor. You'd make a pallet and one would be up in the back window of the car. You know, my kids, I was telling this story the other day, and they're like, you're in the window of the car? I don't even know what that means. You know, there's that, you had that big old ledge back there. Can you imagine driving down the road today and seeing some family as you're driving by with kids laid out all over the car? You'd be calling DHR right away. It's just family. They don't know what they're doing. So we would travel across country, and of course, this was back in the day when there was no video in the car, there was no GPS in the car, there was no um, cell phones that everybody could play on, there was nothing going on. I mean, AM radio was all you could get on these cross-country drives and if you're lucky, you'd hear hear Paul Harvey like two or three times uh, replayed during the day, some of you even don't even know what I'm talking about, who Paul Harvey was, but you'd hear him uh, go on and so There was nothing really exciting to do, so I did what any 10 or 11-year-old would do. I read maps. Uh, Listen, it's going to be hard for me to tell this story without coming across as a complete nerd, and I I really can't do it, but I was the cool map reader, Um, but I would be reading maps, and You know, on the old maps, for those of you who are too young to know, on old maps, they used to put in red numbers the miles. Like between one city to another, they would put miles. So uh, driving across South Georgia, I would be calculating the closest route. I'd be adding up the miles. I'd be timing in my head. And as a 10 or 11-year-old, my poor dad would hear this voice come from the back, telling him which route to take which road to drive, how to get there. Of course, my dad, in his infinite wisdom, would go a different route than the one I had programmed and planned. And so I had calculated in my head how long it should have taken us to drive from Thomasville, Georgia, to Savannah. And so when we didn't get there by that time, uh, I started chirping from the back, if you'd gone my way, you'd be in Savannah by now. If you'd gone my and if you go to any Brookens family reunion still with my siblings, if there's someone who starts talking about something they know nothing about but with total confidence, you'll hear somebody say, if you'd gone my way, you'd be in Savannah by by now. Sometimes we we think we're on the right route, but we're not really sure. Are we going the right way? We're traveling for sure, but are we going the right way? The opening to one of the most famous poems, allegories in literature is Dante's Inferno. And in it he says, midway on our life's journey. This is the opening line of Dante's Inferno. Midway on our life's journey, I found myself in dark woods, the right road lost. The right road lost. So often we live life without even examining our route. And many times we wake up at some point with the right road lost, not even sure how to get back to where we should be. Today, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, it's a day we celebrate. And whatever our customs, whatever our symbols, Easter is always about a found new life, the resurrection. It's about hope. It is so much more than just about chocolate bunnies and new clothes. Over the past weeks, we've been looking at prophecies concerning the cross. Prophetic words written many, many ages before Jesus ever even came. We started looking at um, uh, the grace that came to us, abounding grace, about the story of uh, of how from the day man fell, the first prophetic word of the cross comes from God himself where he's speaking to the enemy, and he talks about humanity. He's going to crush his head. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Speaking of the cross, about the picture of the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham. And it's really a picture of the cross where God is going to take on the penalty of our sin for himself, the grace of God. We looked at the praise of God, how in Psalm 22, David writes uh, about the cross in ways that he could never have written about the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opening line of Psalm 22 quoted by Jesus on the cross nails, his hands and feet pierced, references that we couldn't have known about, and and it causes us to get to a place to praise God. We looked at uh, last week, Isaiah chapter 53, about the abounding love of God. I mean, these passages were written. The Abrahamic covenant was 2,000 plus years before Christ. David, some thousand years before Jesus ever came. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ comes. And the accuracy that they predict or prophesy, really, about the cross is remarkable. Just incredible. Today, I want to look at another passage from Isaiah and a passage from Job. Isaiah chapter 25, and hopefully you've turned there. The passage will be up on the screen I'm not going to read it all in context now. I'm just going to save a little bit of time. But I would, inc- I would encourage you to later go read these 12 or 13 verses. Just read them through and get the context of it all. I just want to walk us through this passage. But here's, here's what I really want you to see. In, in verse 8 of chapter 25, There are six words that are central to the Bible, to me. Right here in this passage, they become verses that, to me, interpret all of the Scripture. And they are these. He will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever. Let's look this morning on this Resurrection Sunday, this Easter Sunday, about four truths that we can find from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 25, that speak about the resurrection in our life now. And I, I pray that the Spirit of God stir our hearts afresh and anew this morning to receive from the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, these truths concerning life, resurrection, what it the benefit that it brings us. Here's the first one. As a result of the resurrection, we can have an unwavering confidence in God. An unwavering confidence in God. I'm going to read these verses from Isaiah chapter twenty five. Here's verse one. He says, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you and praise your name. And here's why. For in perfect. Faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. The faithfulness of God, if you really look at these passages in Isaiah and the ones we've looked at, we can have an unwavering confidence in God. Why? Because we can see plans made from the creation story, from the Abraham story, from, from David to Isaiah. These, these plans of God are all, all fulfilled his plans made long ago come to pass it should it should cause us to for faith to rise up within us and to say this is not just some religion this is a god who fulfills all his promises because all his promises are yes and amen right that means they all get fulfilled and as a result you can have confidence in god the resurrection as we know the resurrection of christ takes this really not very impressive group of men and women and turns them into totally committed followers willing to lay down their life the story of thomas you know he gets he gets a bad rap thomas does i'm mean, There's an adjective that describes him. Doubting Thomas. Being stuck with that for all these millennia. But, you know, he wasn't there at the first exposure that Christ, the resurrected Christ, came to the followers. So, he's still in that group of of, wow, Jesus died. I can't believe Jesus died. We all ran away. Now he's hearing the news that he's resurrected and he's saying, hey, I'm not going to believe unless I touch his hand and his side. And he's in a upper room with Jesus. I heard T.D. Jakes do this thing on this room the other day. I can't even go close to doing it, but he talks about how Jesus was suddenly in the room through a closed door, fully spirit, spirit enough to go through a closed door, but fully human and enough to eat the fish that was present there. And he says to Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side. And Thomas goes from doubting to the most remarkable confession of faith really in the Bible where he says, my Lord and my God. What transformed Thomas from doubter to my Lord and my God? The resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ did. And, and when we receive the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead, we can now have an unwavering confidence in God. And and I would dare say that there are many here today. Your confidence has been shaken because for many of us, our confidence is in things we've placed confidence in other than God. Let's say you place confidence in money. Let's say you place confidence in your job or in even human relationships. Something can fail in those, and your confidence gets shaken. As a matter of fact, we don't want—we don't want to receive fully what God has done because we want everything our own way. Do you remember uh, a number of years ago, Burger King? Their their slogan was "Have it your way," whatever you, whatever you want it, you can have it. Well, you know that wasn't really true because you still had to eat their stinking burgers. And you couldn't really cook them like you wanted. You could put whatever you wanted on it. But that was their slogan for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Have it your way. Have it your way. I mean, the whole campaign. We've got church. You can have it your way. We've got life. You can have it your way. You've got marriage. You can have it your way. You can have relationships. You can have it your way. Whatever you want, you can have it your way. And then at some point, when our way doesn't work out, then our confidence gets shaken which is good news because everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that that which can't be shaken will remain. What needs to remain? Our confidence has to be in God. We have an unwavering hope and confidence in him. If you're here today and there's some things happening in your life and your confidence in circumstances or people or situations has been shaken, praise God. Praise God. You may be saying, well, that doesn't seem very praiseworthy. No. Why? Because you can get back to a place where your total unwavering confidence is in him. That's what the resurrection leads us to. Verse 9 of Isaiah says, In that day, what day? The day of, of Christ. They will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in what? His salvation. His salvation, it's what it leads us to. Now, let me just say this as I move to the second point where we talk about confidence in God. I've talked about this in the past where prophetic literature can have multiple layers of meaning. So for Isaiah, probably there was a meaning related to just them at that time. Then there's the meaning of Christ's first coming. And I believe there's also a later meaning that's referring to Christ's second coming. And it can mean all of those things at the same time. And really, scholars sometimes get in debate. If you ever want to go study Isaiah 25, which most of you won't pass this point, that's all right. Um, But there's a big debate. Is he referring to Christ's first coming or second coming? And, And I would say yes. Yeah, he's, I think he's, he's got it all in here. His first coming and his second. So when we talk about an unwavering confidence in God, we, the resurrection gives us confidence now for this life because we serve a resurrected king, and it gives us confidence in the future because we also serve a returning king. We can have confidence now and in the future because of him. Which leads me to the second point. You have assurance, not just for now, confidence for now, but you have an assurance for the future. For the future. Now let me just say, these verses I'm going to read to you, you're going to come away saying, really, you're going to read that on Easter? But just hang on and I'll explain. Look at verses 2 through 5. He says, you have made the city a heap of rubble. The fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold, a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in its distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm, driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. So, As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is still. Skip down. It gets even more uplifting than this. Look down at verse 10 10 through 12. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. Now, this is a graphic picture. He's already talking about straw in the manure. Where are the people? Well, they will spread out their hands in it. As a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim, God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground to the very dust. Somebody say hallelujah. Boy, that was really, I'm so blessed he read that to me on Easter, Pastor. Here's what I think we see in this passage. There is coming a day when everything will be made right. Everything will be made right. He talks about uh, the people with their pride, the ruthless, um, those those that appear to be winning now. There's coming a day when God's going to set it all right. The poor will find their refuge in Him. Those who seem oppressed now, if they're followers of God in Jesus Christ, they will they will be safe. Here's, here's the takeaway. I'm not going to get all bogged down into who are the ruthless, the proud, who's going to be brought down low. It seems a little judgmental on my part to really talk about who the Moab of our generation might be. God's going to work it out. He's going to settle it. But here's what I think this passage, when it talks about the assurance of our future and that God is going to settle everything one day, here's here's my message to us. You have a choice now but there will be a day when you have no choice. You have a choice now that determines your future, but there's going to come a future point where you don't have a choice. I think Isaiah is very clear about this. Paul echoes this, and he also quotes from Isaiah, another passage in Isaiah, actually, um, when he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he says, For he says... In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. That day is today. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day. So we have an assurance for the future, but that assurance for the future is based on the decisions we make now concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hear a lot about how We just need to be sincere, and really what matters is the sincerity. But you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. And your sincerity will still lead you to the wrong place. Just two weeks ago on March 26th, a British Airways flight took off from London City Airport en route to Dusseldorf, Germany. As they were landing, people started looking around saying, you know, you can kind of kind of see as they were landing. They're like, "This isn't Dusseldorf." They're going into land. Well, they landed in Edinburgh, Scotland. Everybody on the flight had intended to go to Dusseldorf. The problem was the flight crew, the pilot. They had a flight plan that said Edinburgh. I mean, they they were going and they land, and the people are saying, hey, "What are we?" We're in the wrong place. And the crew said, no, we're in the right place. We knew where we were going. Edinburgh. And the British Airways had to, had to release a. They refueled. Everything was safe. They took them on to Dusseldorf hours you know, late, of course. But British Airways said this. As pleasant as Edinburgh is this time of year, we're sorry that passengers traveling to Dusseldorf, initially landed in the Scottish capital. Listen, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong, and you will end up at the wrong place. We live in a day, I'm not going to stay here very long, but we live in a day where the leading questions that concern God are questions like this. If God is a God of love, then surely he won't fill in the blank after that. He won't punish me. He won't send me from his presence forever. If I'm really trying to do what's right to the best of my ability, surely God who's a God of love will cut me some slack. Or statements like this, God made me like this. Surely God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I can live life in this manner. And because God is a God of love and he made me like this and he wants me to be happy, surely God won't. Or a statement like this. If what I'm doing is not harming anyone else, then surely I can, I can do this. The problem with all of those statements is multitudinal. But to start with, it, it makes us the arbiter of what's right we are the stand we are the arbiter of truth not only that if i become the arbiter of truth and your truth is different than mine whose truth prevails if you're the arbiter of your truth you're the arbiter of your truth you're the arbiter of your truth then all these competing truths some truth can't happen something's gonna something's gonna give You know, God is a God of love. Why is God of love? Because God is love. Love is not merely a characteristic of the nature of God. God is that. But at the same time, God is just. It's not just that God has the characteristic of being just. He is just. He is holy. Those are parts of his nature. And God can truly and completely blend love with justice. I mean, think about this for a second. If you were to, I could, I could go through a hundred pictures. Let's, let's choose who we want to rule over us. Someone who perfectly balances love and justice. Some leader in the world today. Do you want this guy, this woman, this person, that person, that person, that person? And there, there's a flaw in that because none of them are totally love and totally just. Only God is a perfect balance of those two because he is those things. He is those characteristics. You see, here's the point. Because of the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus has been given all authority to rule. The authority is is His. So our assurance for the future is based on a resurrected, ascended Lord. There's coming a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because of the crucifixion, Jesus humbling Himself, the resurrection, God bringing Him to life, and the ascension. As a result... Every knee's going to bow. But right now is the day of decision. Right now we have a choice that will assure that future. Yes, there's coming a day when every knee will bow, but for many, that day will be too late. It's not a choice day, it's a recognition day. Oh my. And it will be too late. Scholars debate which book was the first book of the Bible ever written. Many people will say Job was the first book ever written down. Job, as you know, he undergoes terrible situations. His whole family is killed. He loses everything. He loses his health. He's, he's got boils all over his body. He's, he's He's got no place to live. He's homeless. He's sitting outside on a heap where he's just scraping the scabs on his body. and It's horrible. He has these arbiter of truth friends who showed up. You know, the people who are going to help Job find out what he did wrong to get here. You know, help him discover his his flaws. They start coming and sharing with him. Job has this response right in the middle of Job, right in the middle when his circumstances could be no worse. I mean, it is at the pit of things for him. And he makes this incredible statement. He says this, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, and it's being destroyed in the process of when he's speaking, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In the middle of his horrible situation and circumstance, Job pulls out a word from his language, the word redeemer. The word redeemer, it's the same word that's used in Ruth, the redeemer, the champion of faith. It's the same word that is used in Proverbs to speak of the defender of the weak. It's the same word used in Exodus that describes the deliverer of the captured. I know my redeemer lives. Now, Job is speaking of faith for his future, but in it he gives a prophetic word concerning our Redeemer, who on the earth indeed did stand and will stand again. It leads to my third point, which is this. We have the guarantee that death is not the end. I mean, we... We we can have an unwavering confidence in God. We can have an assurance for the future, but that assurance also is a guarantee that death, physical death, is not the end. Verses seven and eight of Isaiah twenty-five says, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. What is that shroud? What is that sheet? The shroud is the shroud of death. The sheet is the sheet of death that covers all nations. He goes on and says those six words, three in Hebrew, but six in the way it's translated, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You can have confidence in this. Death will be defeated. He will swallow up death forever. For people who die in the Lord, who make, who receive Jesus, the one who forgives their sin and leads their life, this life is not the end. There's this, uh, I keep uncovering my geekiness at times, but Um, I I like to watch BBC America, and uh, every so often on BBC or PBS, they'll show this uh, show called The Vicar of Dibley, Um, and it's about this uh, vicar, which is a pastor or priest, and it's a woman, one of the first ones, and it's based, it's in Great Britain, and it's based loosely on the the life of uh, Joy Carol Wallace. And I I read an article by her one time where she was describing this woman, this 87-year-old woman in her parish who was undergoing surgery. Her name was Flory Shore. I like that name, Flory, Flory Shore. Somebody name your kid Flory coming up. Anyway, this 87-year-old woman named Flory Shore, she was undergoing surgery. The the outlook for the surgery was not real all that positive. And so she went into the surgery knowing that she could possibly die. But the surgery turned out to be okay. And as she's waking up, she can't really see. There's a doctor in white standing in front of her. And so through her blurriness, she says, she says Hello, God. I'm Flory Shore. <laughs> I, to me, I just love that. For a number of reasons. One, there's a humility about it. To think God doesn't know your name. Right? So I'm going to introduce myself to God. Hey God, I'm Flory Shore. And the second is this. This confidence that death was not the end. For her, it's just a recognition. Alright, i I'm moved on. This is awesome. Many of us fear death. In a way that is brings a tragedy. About a year ago, as you know, my my father passed away, and um, without getting overly graphic, I, I couldn't reach my dad. Um, one day, I called him every morning. I would call and check on him, just to make sure he was doing okay, and this particular morning, I called him. I talked to him the morning before he was going to the Walmarts or something, and um, called him the next morning. Couldn't reach him. That eh, wasn't unusual. I couldn't reach him the first time, but I kept calling through the morning. And the more I called, the more concerned I got because he would have called me back. I did, he was living just down the hill. I got a key. Uh, Olivia had to bring the key to me to the apartment because I was here at church. She met me there. I, had her, I knocked on the door, there was a package at the door. I knew immediately, something's not right. So I opened the door, I told Olivia to wait outside. I go in, and I f- found my father. He had fallen out of his chair and had passed away. And um, the reality of the situation is this. I was sad, but I wasn't sad. You know, I mean, I, I, I know it sounds crazy, My dad lived 85 years. He lived a great life. I mean, if you go to the place where he was raised in South Georgia, this farm out in the middle of nowhere, and you think how my dad and mom both came from this place of, you know, my mom never graduated from college. My dad did go to college and then seminary, and then uh, he became a pastor. I mean, I'd look at the pictures of the world that they traveled the lives they impacted, the faith they demonstrated. And and I I have to tell you that for me, death was not a loss. It, It is, but it's not. Why? Because I have a guarantee because of the resurrection of Jesus that death is not the end. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I declare to you, brothers... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Let me set this up a little for you as I read just a little further. 1 Corinthians 15 all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Going back, I mean, we're 50 verses in. 49 verses before this, Paul starts a defense of the resurrection of Christ. The life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And that if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain and we're to be pitied. But because of the resurrection of Christ, we're guaranteed that he will return and that we'll receive a, a resurrection body. That's what he's talking about right here. He goes on and says, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. This is straight from Isaiah 25. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, oh death, is your sting? Because of the resurrection, we have a guarantee that death is not the end. We should live now with a guarantee of forever. Listen to me again. This is really important for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Don't live now like, oh, when I die... I'm going to get, you know, that guarantee of forever should impact the way you live your life now. In other words, eternity is not there. Eternity is now. You understand? Because from here on out, there is no end. You may pass through one door into another, but it's not an end. I spoke on this last week. Eternity, live as if you're in eternity now because death is not the end. Leads me to the final point from this passage. We have the promise of the greatest party. The greatest party. The resurrection. The resurrection. We can have an unwavering hope. We can have um, assurance for the future. We have the guarantee that death is not at the end. And because of the resurrection, we have this promise of the greatest party ever thrown that we get to go to. Here's verse 6 of Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Right? The best. I've been to some good parties. I, I, you know, not bad parties. I mean, good parties. I don't know how I can sell this very well, but what I'm saying is, I've been to some parties where some good stuff was served. Food, I mean. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going very far with this illustration. What I'm saying is, we have the promise of the greatest party still to come ever. Revelation 19 says this Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Guess what? you've got your invitation. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've received and you've RSVP'd to the, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. This last Thursday night, we had a Monday Thursday service where we celebrated the Lord's table. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper, it is, a, it is a sign, a symbol, a reality that shows us what Jesus did for us on the cross. But do you remember what he says? Keep doing this. Remember my death until when? Until I come. Why? Because in my mind, the Lord's Supper is not just a picture of what Christ did. It's a promise of what we will receive. That we will partake in the wedding feast of the Lamb. We've got a promise that we get to go to the greatest party ever thrown. In February of this year, Michael Gerson, I think I'm saying his name right, right. I've never heard him speak. I've just read articles that he's posted in the Washington Post. He was speaking at the National Cathedral. He, he is a writer for uh, the Washington Post. And he stated this about his faith and the struggle he had had with the p- Depression. And he said this, at the end of all our striving and longing, we find not a force, but a face. You see, Christianity isn't a religion. Reli- Christianity is a relationship with a living God. Through a, the reality of a person, God in flesh, who came and lived a perfect, sinless life, went to the cross and died for our sins, because we could not pay the penalty for our own sins. He died there, but death could not hold him. Fully dead, he becomes fully alive. Resurrected to life again. Because of the resurrection, we can have total confidence in God. He did what he said he was going to do. We have an assurance that the future is taken care of, no matter what junk you're going through now. You have an assurance for the future. And today you can make the choice to live for him. And if you do, then you have a guarantee that death is not the end and that we will one day as the bride of Christ celebrate with him. Job, I pray that we can say with Job, I know my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Here's my question to us today. What will you do with this good news? Maybe you're here today and you've heard all these stories before. You've been to Easter tons of times. I want to say to you today, now is the day of the Lord's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day when you can receive him as the one who forgives your sins and lead your life. If you've never done that before, I, I implore you to think of, let the Spirit of God lead you, and guide you, and direct you. Don't say, I, I'll put it off, because we none of us knows anything about the future. Today is the day of salvation. For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, maybe like Dante, you've woken up in the middle of woods, and you're saying, I think I'm on the wrong road. We all can get there. I want to say to you, the journey that God has for you is beautiful. Reorient yourself to his path for your life. Many of us, we've lost the confidence that God loves us. We've lost the assurance that future, no matter what, can be taken care of. That God will. We place confidence somewhere else other than him. And and today you may be here and your confidence is shaken and you're on a road that says, I got to get back to where God wants me today. You, You may not get all the turns right, but God will. He'll give them to you. He'll help you. He'll direct your path if you'll give yourself to him. Don't wait for a better day. Don't wait. Let him direct your life. Lord, I thank you. I thank you because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can have an unwavering confidence in you. We thank you that because of the resurrection, our future is assured. And so, Lord, today I pray knowing that there will be a day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I pray that that day for us begins now, that we will have a confidence in you. Lord, that we will receive the guarantee that death is not the end and that we participate in celebrating you forever. Lord, I pray for every person here that our hearts will be aligned with you, wherever they are right now, that they'll be aligned with you. For us, many of us, we need a realignment. For some, they need to be aligned for the very first time. God, direct our path, direct our our course, may it be given to you today. Lord, we thank you, we bless you. Spirit of God, move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.